you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 12, verses uh, 3 through 8. It's going to be our text for this morning, Romans 12, 3 through 8. If, you have your, uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 891. And as you're turning there, uh, if you missed it the first two times, I do just want to say Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers listening. Uh, this morning, we are just so thankful for you and just so grateful for all that you guys do. Uh, we're so glad to have you all with us this morning, and I pray that this service will be an, an immense encouragement to you. It's been a blessing preparing this sermon over the past week. And last week on Wednesday, one of our elders, uh, Bob Lilio, actually gave a presentation to the youth group students on student loan debt. And this was a very informative presentation with a lot of really good points and information for the students to consider when thinking about college. And one thing that he talked about was the overwhelming amount of students who wind up swimming in their student loan debt for years and years and years with seemingly no way out and with no escape. And as I look back at that presentation, and even as I'm thinking about it now, you know, I'm reminded of the cross And for believers, whether you struggled with student loan debt or not, we all know what it feels like to owe a debt that we can't pay off no matter how hard we try or how much we work. However, we also know what it feels like to have that debt paid off apart from anything that we have done. Listen to these beautiful words in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. However, it's not even that we're just forgiven and then just given a clean slate. As scripture would show, we actually gain access to the Father through Christ, We gain eternal life by knowing Jesus. And as we see in Romans 12, 3 through 8, we are given spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. We don't just sit on the sidelines. We have a role to play in furthering his kingdom and building his church. So let's take a look at Romans 12, 3 through 8 now. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who uh, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross, but we thank you for your word. We ask that in these next few moments, as we look at the truth of your holy word and consider its implications in our lives, that we would take an honest look at our own lives and seek to use the lives that you have blessed us with to bring glory and honor to your name. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text shows us that believers are to use their gifts humbly and corporately to build up the body of Christ and bring glory to God. This is what I believe is the 
overall theme of this section in Romans, and I think this is what Paul is really emphasizing, that believers are to use their gifts humbly and corporately to build up the body of Christ and bring glory to God. And Paul shows us three ways how we are able to accomplish this. We must think rightly about ourselves, think rightly about fellow believers, and we need to think rightly about our gifts. The first thing that we see in this text is that in order to use our gifts in a God-glorifying way, we have to think rightly about ourselves. Verse 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And that word for is very crucial. This connects back to verse 2, where Paul tells believers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And how are we transformed? By the renewal of your mind. So one of the first things that Paul says after telling believers to have a renewed mind is not to think too highly of yourself. Now what he's not telling people is to be self-loathing, but rather he is telling them to think with sober judgment. And in this verse, we see that the word think is used three times. This verse is a verse about humility. And what we see here is that humility is a mindset. It's an inner realization that apart from Christ, we are nothing. C.J. Mahaney says that humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness in our sinfulness. So a lot of people would say that humility is just simply not boasting outwardly, just not talking about ourselves in an arrogant way. And as long as we refrain from that, as long as we keep from doing that, we're fine, we're good. In fact, people will talk about how humble they are because they don't boast about themselves. You see the irony in that? And though this is a component of humility, this is not the whole picture. As Greg Gilbert puts it, humility is not knowing that you really are that good at something and then just choosing not to be arrogant about it. True humility says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Humility, according to Paul, is counting others more significant than yourselves, as we see in Philippians 2, verse 3. And not in a way that just forces you to say that someone is more significant when you know deep down that you actually don't believe that. That's the world's version of humility. Now, I'm a huge sports fan, and i got to be honest, I find myself laughing during so many of these interviews that are given to these athletes. Now, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how terrible of a teammate they are, how consumed they are with themselves, or how much they just gave themselves all the glory two minutes before this interview. As soon as they get to the podium and they, the interviewer asks the questions, the answers are almost always the same. Man, you just got to stay humble. Yeah, I'm, I'm humble and blessed, man, humble and blessed. <laughs> or just, yeah, I mean, I just thank the Lord that he made me this great. I mean, Humility is the name of the game for them. Meanwhile, after every touchdown they catch, every basket they make, every home run they hit, you just go down the line. They're pointing to the last name on their backs, talking about how great they are, showing the world that it's because of them, it's because of their hard work, what they've done to accomplish this. And they do it all in the name of humility. This is not humility. Paul states, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. 
So we see that true humility is recognizing that everything we have been given is 100% of grace. True humility is found in the example of Christ, the King of Kings who stepped down from his heavenly throne and came to die so that we might live. True humility is found in the humility modeler who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. This is humility. We need to have our minds set on Christ and not on those around us. A clear focus on Christ is the key to thinking rightly about ourselves. Because when that is our mindset, it will make us take an honest look at ourselves in light of God's holiness and in light of our sinfulness. And we will realize that the only thing we actually deserve is God's judgment, not his favor. And this will cause us to rejoice over God's unmerited favor, not only shown to us, but to our fellow brothers and sisters as well. Because it will allow us to see God's mercy and his kindness shown to undeserving sinners again. I think it's worth noting that humility is also the absence of envy. Envy occurs when we see something else in someone's life and we think that we deserve whatever it is that they have and we don't. Jerry Bridges defines envy as the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Envy is often a very subtle temptation that we must look out for. Envy prevents unity in the church, and it will serve to disrupt unity if it is left unchecked. The path to unity always comes through humility and service. When we're jealous or envious of other people's accomplishments and how much they are used by the Lord, we're like Woody in the movie Toy Story, wanting to get rid of Buzz Lightyear because we don't want anyone else to experience the joy that we've experienced. You know, who needs an astronaut when you've got the freshest cowboy out there? And this is a very childish mindset to have. And just like we see in the movie, unity is shattered as a result. So may we all guard ourselves against the temptation to take our eyes off of Christ and be envious or jealous of another person. As the verse continues, it's important to see that God has granted a differing measure of faith to each of his children. And Paul calls upon each person to assess himself or herself realistically. The meaning of measure of faith is widely debated. However, based on my own judgment as well as others, I think the best option is to view this in light of the upcoming verses that we see on spiritual gifts as well as parallel texts on spiritual gifts such as 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and Ephesians 4, verse 7. And so when read this way, we see that the phrase refers to different spiritual capacities that God gives to each person. It's also worth noting that the word used for faith is the Greek word pistis, And it has enough range that it can be interpreted as position of trust or faithfulness. Michael Byrd makes a good point when he says not only that, but in verse 6 of chapter 12, Paul uses similar language when he says that prophecy should be performed in accordance with the proportion of faith. Paul is referring to the behavior that befits prophecy in the sense of prophesying in a manner appropriate to what has been granted to them. So the measure of faith spoken of here is not a saving faith, but rather faithful stewardship. 
So God has given a measure of grace and faith to every member of the church. And as a result, every believer has been gifted in one way or another. However, we should not think too highly of ourselves when it comes to these gifts. Rather, we are to be humble and be faithful stewards of them. Gifts should not breed arrogance. God is the one who sovereignly provides them. God is the one who drew us to faith by his grace, and he has given us spiritual gifts. So he is the one who gets the glory, not us. Not to us, but to your name, O Lord, be the glory. We need our minds to be transformed by this truth to keep us from exalting ourselves. We are to assess ourselves soberly and use our gifts in a way that serves and that blesses others, not as a means of building our own names or of building our own brands. And the way we do this is not only by thinking rightly about ourselves, but also thinking rightly about fellow believers. Look at verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So those words, for as, in the beginning of verse 4, link it closely with verse 3. So when we think rightly about ourselves, as we just looked at, with Christ as the standard, we'll be able to think rightly about fellow believers. Namely, think rightly about the body of Christ. This illustration shows three characteristics of the body of Christ. It's unity, it's diversity, and it's mutuality. So let's take a brief look at them now. The first thing we see is its unity. Both verses 4 and 5 stress the importance of the one body and makes it clear that all believers are members. While this unity is certainly mysterious in many regards, it is nonetheless real. This is not simply an illustration that is only suggesting that we should try to live in a more close-knit manner or a more harmonious lifestyle. This illustration actually describes the reality that as believers in Christ, we are all part of the body of Christ. We share the same nature. We see this in multiple places throughout Scripture. 2 Peter 1.4 says that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And in John 15, 5, we see that we get our spiritual life and our spiritual strength from the same source when Jesus tells us, I am the vine, you are the branches. And in Jesus' high priestly prayer, we see that our unity is the main subject of his prayer. He repeatedly prays to the Father in John 17, 21 through 23, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So second, while there is a real unity that exists, there is also a very real diversity. This is seen clearly in these verses. The members, it says, do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Just as a body has many members that carry out important functions, but is one body, so the church is united, though it is composed of many members. God's glory is revealed in the diversity of his people. And this is very important to recognize because it shows that as we measure ourselves by Christ's standard, we will be ourselves. Being in Christ's body will maximize our uniqueness. 
And this is a very good and glorious thing in the sight of God. When I was in the discipleship program at Laterno, I had to preach a sermon three separate times uh, throughout the course of the year. And I'd actually never preached before. And the first sermon I preached was to just my classmates, which was about one other student. Uh, the second one was in front of a slightly larger audience at Laterno. And my final one I actually preached here while we were still doing everything online. I preached on Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, how Jesus is our superior high priest. And I remember as I was preparing that first sermon, I was preaching on the sacrifice of Isaac found in Genesis 22. And the whole time, the entire time I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking to myself, really to my absolute shame, what is the best way that I can hide my personality? I shouldn't be me when I go to preach. I want to sound sophisticated and elegant up there, and, and Mike Smith certainly is not sophisticated. Now, I, I wanted to do everything in my power to hide who I was. I didn't want to be unique. I wanted to, to simply blend in. I wanted to sound like John Piper or Matt Chandler or John MacArthur or Matt Fletcher or Kanan Parker. I mean, I wanted to be anyone but Mike. And I will tell you that I have never felt more fake in my life than when I went to preach that sermon. I was uncomfortable. I was awkward. I was losing my place in my notes. I was all over the place. I was trying to manufacture my emotions, and worst of all, I was not relying on the Holy Spirit to use his word for his glory. Instead, I was relying on my manuscript, my preparation, my flair, and needless to say, I fell flat on my face. And in doing this, I had completely forgotten the fact that the Lord uses the personalities of his people to accomplish his mission as well. When you read Paul's writing, it sounds a lot different than Peter's. And John the Baptist is a very different person than Matthew. And that's a good thing. There weren't too many people that were trying to copy John the Baptist's lifestyle, eating locusts and just throwing on a fleece of camel's hair. And looking back, I praise the Lord for the lessons that I learned through that. And I praise the Lord that we aren't just a bunch of clones. Yes, we are united in Christ, but we are also very diverse, and that brings glory to the Lord. As Kent Hughes says, when the Spirit of God is free to work in a church, there is diversity. And finally, we must see the mutuality of the body of Christ. So verse 5 says that we are members one of another. And for the scripture reading, we read 1 Corinthians 12, which beautifully shows our mutuality by pointing out that when one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So a couple years ago, I actually had to have surgery on both of my knees as a result of actually growing too fast. Yes, that can happen. I grew so fast that both of my patellar tendons tore. I'm telling you, being tall is, is just overrated. And what I found is that my knees were injured, but because my knees were hurt, the rest of my body had to try and pick up the slack as well. So now it's not just my knees that hurt. 
Now my back's also prone to get hurt far more than before, far easier than before. Now I'm 25 years old and already I have to groan every time I stand up. It's, it's disgusting. And I found quickly that when one member of my body suffered, the rest of my body quickly followed suit. It's the same with the body of Christ. Each of us needs each other. There's no place in the body of Christ for Lone Ranger Christianity. We need one another. If you feel like you're not growing in the Lord, even though you read and you pray every day, it may be that you are not getting together with fellow believers and you're therefore depriving yourself of the necessary things that you need for spiritual growth. As Colin Hansen so plainly puts it, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. How beautiful the body of Christ truly is. I love the way William MacDonald summarizes these two verses. That is how it is in the body of Christ. There is unity, diversity, and mutuality. Any gifts we have are not for selfish use or for display, but for the good of the body. No gift is self-sufficient and none is unnecessary. When we realize all this, we are thinking soberly. The last thing that we see is that we need to think rightly about our gifts. So let's look at verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So in thinking rightly about our gifts, there are a few truths that we should consider. As believers, we all have gifts. No Christian is left out. We all have at least one spiritual gift. We also see that this is not an exhaustive list, since we see Paul mention gifts elsewhere in Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 12. Rather, this list is meant to summarize the types of gifts that the church, that the church possesses. And so what we should not miss here is the fact that Paul calls believers to use their gifts with excellence and with passion. I think it's fair to group these gifts into two separate categories, teaching gifts and serving gifts, or verbal gifts and nonverbal gifts. In the teaching category, we would include prophecy, teaching, exhortation, and leading. Now, leading can sometimes be nonverbal as well, but in reference to formal leadership in the church, it often involves teaching. And so then the serving gifts would include service, giving, and showing mercy. And again, this does not mean that those who speak never serve or that those who serve never speak. Rather, it's simply saying that these functions of ministry are worked out in the body through the exercise of individual gifts. And when we use these gifts, we build up the body of Christ and we bring glory to God. So the first gift we see in this list is prophecy. Although prophecy can sometimes be predictive, that's not the primary or even necessary way that it's used. The gift of prophecy is primarily a gift of proclamation, not prediction. This gift is normally the communication of a revealed truth in a manner that convicts and that builds up its hearers. When we preach the word of God, we are, in a sense, prophesying as we proclaim the truths of Scripture. However, we are to do this in proportion to our faith, looking to Christ as the standard. 
Next, Paul mentions service. This word is actually the same word from which we get deacon, and it refers to the variety of services that deacons and deaconesses serve uh, and perform in the church. The one who serves is to exercise his gift to the fullest, seeking to give himself fully and wholeheartedly to the work, just as we see Philip and his friends do in Acts chapter 6. Teaching is the next gift that Paul mentions, and teaching differs from prophecy in that it is used to instruct the mind, whereas prophecy is addressed more specifically to the heart and to the will. Teaching is more concerned with knowledge. Prophecy is more concerned with revelation. We then move into the gift of exhortation. And the root idea here is to come alongside and encourage. Exhortation can take many forms. It could be warning, it could be advice, counsel, or even encouragement, or other ways as well. And this is a wonderful gift, and we need to be willing to exercise it whenever necessary, no matter the cost, no matter how much it drains you or anything, we need to be willing to lay it at the feet of the cross and be willing to use it whenever the time is necessary. Next is the gift of giving. This is in reference to our motive for giving. And those who have this gift are to exercise it without any ulterior motives or selfish interests, but rather simply out of love. This is where Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 failed. When we give, it is simply to be for the glory of God and to help out our struggling brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. It should also be stated that just because you may feel like you don't have this gift doesn't make you exempt from tithing or giving to the Lord's work. That's a command in Scripture. And the same with with some of these other gifts as well. As believers, we should always be seeking to help help out our fellow brothers and sisters, whether it's financially, whether it's in our service, whether it's simply through prayer or some other means. Saying you don't have a certain gift is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card that you can just use whenever. So we then move into the gift of leadership. Those who lead in the church should do so, as the text says, with zeal. We should not wing it, We should not become casual in our approach to leading, but we should always be prepared. We need to see this gift as divinely granted and charged by the Lord himself. So lastly, we move into the gift of showing mercy. This can take many forms. It could be aiding the poor, helping the handicapped, tending to the sick. But whatever the function is, it must be done with cheerfulness. This ensures that the gift of mercy becomes a genuine help to those who are suffering and not a discouragement to those who are suffering. We need to do so with cheerfulness. These are the seven beautiful gifts that Paul mentions in this section. Kent Hughes refers to these as perfumes for the body of Christ. This should cause us to look at our own lives and the church with a capital C. If we all were to follow Paul's advice, using our gifts humbly and corporately to build up his body, think about how healthy the universal church would be. Maybe God is speaking to you about your own gifts. Remember that it's it's not the church that gave you your gifts. It is God himself. They are his, and we need to use them for his glory. 
And if that's you, if you're sitting there and you, you think you have a spiritual gift and you're not exercising that, I would encourage you to talk with a ministry leader, an elder, or a staff member to see where you uh, can best utilize your gifts at Webster Bible Church. So next question we need to ask is, how is our thinking today? Are we thinking rightly about ourselves with our eyes fixed on Christ? Or are we thinking too highly of ourselves and comparing ourselves with others so that we look good? If that's the case, we, we need to look to Christ and remember his words in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are we thinking rightly about other believers? Is the body of Christ truly a reality to us? It's unity. It's diversity. It's mutuality. And finally, how is our thinking about the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to us? Are we using them? And if not, why not? May we all consider these truths, looking to Christ as our standard. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for who you are. Father, I ask that you would help us to seek to apply these truths in our own lives. Lord, I pray that we would not be like the man in James 1 who looks in the mirror and then at once forgets what he looks like, but rather help us to hear your word, treasure it in our hearts, and use it to shape the way that we live our lives. We thank you that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword and it is able to pierce the soul. May it pierce all of our souls today, O Lord, for we ask in your name. Amen.